0: Blindness is a terrible affliction, especially for those that once were able to see and then suddenly the gift of sight, for one reason or another, is taken from them. How terrible it must be to suddenly feel as though you're imprisoned in a form of darkness. But some have said, well, it's even worse if you were born that way. You've never seen the blue sky you've never seen the beauty of the world around you you have no memories you have nothing to use as a guide or a memory or or any sense of of being able to say ah yes i remember what that was like one of the worst forms of blindness is for those that will not see and that i suppose takes in all of us until the Spirit of God begins to speak to us about our spiritual blindness. The Bible says that the eyes of our understanding are to be opened. And of course, the Bible says the entrance of your word gives light. We're going to talk about the need that we all have and that the Ephesians had for this spiritual sight this wonderful illumination where we can really say we've passed from darkness and come into light. The psalmist David prayed a beautiful threefold prayer in the 25th Psalm. It's a beautiful psalm, and he prays these three great requests that he had. He says here in verse 4 of Psalm 25, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, and lead me in your truth. O teach me. So here we have it. Show me your ways. He wanted revelation of the nature of God. He wanted to understand this great God that he had such an appetite spiritually for. He longed to know what God was like. You see, you can have a great desire for God, but you have to have something beyond that. You have to have an actual appetite to know who God is, what God wants, how God senses and feels about every issue that is common to both he and to yourself. So he prays for revelation. Show me your ways. And then he wanted something more. He said, teach me, teach me your paths. He believed that God had ways that we could not understand unless God gave instruction, gave understanding. And so we have revelation, we have instruction. Lord, open my eyes that I might know your nature, your will, your purpose, your plan, and then teach me how to live and walk in a path that leads me further into that understanding and to compliance with your will. It's one thing to know the will of God, and it's another thing to do it. The Lord wants to show us the steps that we should take in order for us to understand fully, not only intellectually, but by experience and obedience, what he has planned. And then there's the third aspect of this prayer in the fifth verse. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Guidance. Yes, personal guidance in the will and the purposes of God, guidance of what we should be, how we should be, how we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, how we should understand the ways of God and walk in those ways. So we've got revelation, instruction, and guidance. Now, no wonder David was said to be a man after God's own heart. For in the 27th Psalm, he says these things. This is his testimony. This is the the heart of a young man before he'd reached his maturity, the great desire, the great passion that he had for God. It's found in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing. I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. In other words, he had a desire to live in the presence of God, to live intimately with God. Now, we know that God has no favourites. He is not a respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of heart attitudes. And we know that God has no favourites, but he has intimates. He has those close to him, like John, his apostle, who was the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, we know that Jesus didn't prefer him for some personal reason. It was because of the tremendous passion that John had to be near the Lord Jesus Christ, to please him, to, even in his dark days at Calvary, to stand at the foot of the cross And on that great day when he gathered his disciples together for the Passover meal and shared with them more intimately than he had ever before done, John just wanted to be so close and rested his head on his shoulder and listened with intent and wrote every detail of the discussion that took place and the teaching that took place that particular night, the night of betrayal. One thing, said David, I have desired of the Lord. Now, there were many desires that David had, but the overriding desire was that he may dwell in the house or the presence of God. And he said, and I don't want it just now and again, I want it all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to have a wonderful two-way relationship, a discourse where he is speaking to me as much as I'm praying to him. And this is a wonderful possibility. And we know that from John's Gospel and chapter 14. And as we turn the pages of our Bible, would you do that with me as I do? John chapter 14, that upper room discourse where Jesus began to unburden his heart about so many things. He longed for the disciples to love one another, to be committed to one another. He talked about the second coming in the 14th chapter. He talked about the coming of the Spirit of God. They would feel a physical loss when Jesus went back to the bosom of the Father. But Jesus made it very plain that when the Spirit comes, he will be one drawn alongside to you, and not only will be with you, but will be within you. And you will sense my presence in such a real way, even though you don't see me, you will know that I am with you always. And then in the 21st verse of John 14, Jesus says these wonderful words. He who takes seriously my commandments and keeps them, he does it because he loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And I will manifest myself to him. I will draw aside the curtain that makes God to a certain degree obscure. And I will be seen plainly by him. And what are the requirements? Obedience out of a heart of love. And then Jesus goes on to say in the 23rd verse, If anyone loves me, he will just be keeping my word. If you love someone, anyone that's dear to you, it's your desire and it's your joy, it's even a privilege to serve them, to please them. You want to be not only with them, but you want their pleasure. And if you have the means of bringing pleasure into their lives, That's what you do. And so that's what we hear in this 23rd verse. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father, you see the father's involved in this, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our abode, with him. You can live in the manifest presence of God the Father, God the Son, through the ministry and the yielding of your life to the Holy Spirit. And this is the great burden that that Paul had for the Ephesian church. He was pleased that he'd heard a message that these Ephesians believers they were beginning to trust one another and even love one another. He said, when I, I first heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, I heard also of your love for all the saints. That's in Ephesians 1.15. And he said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. In other words, they were settling into their new faith and a new fellowship. And the believers that were Jewish were losing some of that sense of separation from their Gentile brothers and sisters. You know, they had had millenniums of this sort of sense of separateness from the Gentiles. But in Christ, they have this new dimension of appreciation and love for the fellow brothers and sisters, even though they may be Gentiles. Once regarded as Gentile dogs, and dogs were to be kept outside, they were there to serve a purpose. But now they had been brought in, into the banqueting house, and the banner over them both, Jew and Gentile, was love. And they were beginning to lose that animosity, that separation, that difference, that sense of separateness. They'd lost that, and there was beginning to sprout within their new fertile heart an appreciation and a love for one another. But look how the Apostle Paul develops this thought. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. A similar prayer that David prayed for himself in Psalm 27 and Psalm 25. I want the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of Of his inheritance in the saints. Well, what are the riches of glory? What is the inheritance of the saints? We just read about it in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 21 23, that if you love me and you pursue me through obedience to my word, and do it out of this great, growing, developing love, then I will manifest myself to you. You'll get to see me in the Spirit, understand me, know me intimately, and my Father, my Father and I will come to you, and we will take up residence within you through the person and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what makes the difference between relationship, redemption, and just ordinary religion. Religion is the pursuing of God with the limited understanding that we have of God by doctrine and dogma, And even though we may be utterly sincere, we know that there's the absence of something dynamic. Well, we know that from the second chapter of Ephesians and verse 1, what that dynamic is. And that is that suddenly we are quickened or made alive. We were once dead in our trespasses, our sins, we were in darkness. The God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, had blinded our minds that we could not understand, we could not really comprehend the clarity that some seem to have regarding the things of God. And you, I guess, like me, know that we have In our unsaved state or in the beginnings of faith, we have met people who had an intimate relationship. They weren't fanatics. They weren't mystics. They weren't over the top. They were genuine people, ordinary people, with an extraordinary experience in God. I remember meeting my wife's mother, not for the first time. I knew her when I was an infant of about three or four years of age. But when I was about 14, I met her again once in her home. And I remember the very first day I was reacquainted with her, she turned and I looked at her and I saw something. And it wasn't a momentary glimpse. It was an impression that I got. This woman is so godly. And as I got to know her, I became compelled to ring her from time to time on the phone and talk to her in my breaks when I was working. And I would ask her questions about the presence of God, about the things of God, about the knowledge of God, about the desire that God has, the will of God for my life, for everyone's life. And out of her innermost being, like the scripture says in John 7, 37, out of her innermost being, there just flowed effortlessly the rivers of living water. And my mother, who was also at that time unsaved, used to say, there's something about that woman. There's something about a lot of people in your church that they seem to have a dynamic in their lives that we know nothing about. Well, what was it? Well, it's simply this, that Christ lives in them. Christ has taken up residence within them, just as he promised. Because of their devotion, because of their obedience, because they were walking both in love and in obedience to his word, the Father and the Spirit had come, and Christ was formed within them. And this was the continuing quickening that Ephesians two one speaks about. There is a beginning, but there's no ending of the developing walk that you can have with the Lord himself. Marvelous, isn't it? And so the Apostle Paul writing in the first chapter of Ephesians prays that they will have this ever-developing continuance of understanding. He said that you will have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, as you study the scriptures, as you wait upon God, as you spend time in the solace of meditation, waiting before God, That the Spirit of God will calm your spirit, deepen your spirit, open your spirit, impart to your spirit the knowledge of God. Now, friends, can I just say a couple of very, very basic, practical things. You must have a continuing and a disciplined quiet time. A snatch of the Bible here and a snatch of verses there and a haphazard uh, reading of the Bible when it suits you, if it suits you, if you've got time, none of that will bring about the deepening and the solidifying of the walk that you so desire. I know you desire the things of God. I know that you long to have the manifest presence of God in your life. I know. I know that in the days that lie ahead, when things will get darker and darker, the only preservation will be your walk with God, your understanding of him, your love for him, your appreciation of him, your worship of him, your sensitivity to him, and your continuing hunger to know his word, know his will, know the times and the seasons that he has laid out before us so that we can be wise unto salvation and know the times and the seasons so that we can adjust and prepare our lives accordingly. So here we go back to the first chapter of Ephesians. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Well, it is that you see him, that you know him, that you love him, that you experience him and are prepared for when he returns again. Now, if we hearken back to the upper room discourse in John's gospel and chapter 14, you will hear these amazing words of Jesus. He says here in the 17th verse of chapter 14, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So as you take time to seek the Lord and take time to just spend time in his presence over the word of God with a consistent reading program of the Bible so you get a comprehensive overview of the Bible and then wait on God in prayer, God is going to start to work within your spirit and the spirit that is with you will develop within you this capacity to understand the deep things of God. Now, it goes on to say here in the 19th verse, Jesus speaking, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. You see, the world lives in a physical dimension only. Unless they know the quickening of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 2.1, they are only confined to the physical, the intellectual. The spiritual is something that is hazy at the best, obscure, and impossible to understand, and impossible to enter into. But here it says here, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. I think that is a momentous statement. He's saying to his disciples, the world will say, hey, he's gone, he's disappeared. And that will be at the ascension on the Mount of Olives. The last hope that mankind outside of the moving of the Spirit would have to see Jesus would be physically Because after the ascension, they would see him no more. And yet the promise here is that though the world would see him no more, you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In other words, they would be living in his divine presence. Now, that's why the world is mystified. And, of course, there are those that scoff at this and say, oh, that's just uh, you know a whole lot of rubbish, mysticism, weird. Christians, they're saying that they're in touch with the Lord. How ridiculous is that? It's so foreign to them. Don't chide them. Don't, don't criticize them. How can they understand unless the spirit is active with them and within them? So, we have this so very plainly spread out before us. The expectation of every believer should be that they can go on into an intimate relationship with the Lord. And he begins to sort out our lives. He begins to give us divine priorities. Of course, we're very keen to seize divine promises but there are principles and priorities that he will begin to speak to us about. The more we wait upon God, the more we wait before God, the more apparent his will is. And he goes on to say here, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. That's in verse 18, John 14. In other words, when I leave physically this earth, You will not be bereft. You will not be cast out. You will not all of a sudden say, oh, he's left us, he's gone. You know, what are we going to do? Because I will come to you. But how will he come to us? He will come to us in the person and the ministry, the revelation, the instruction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's praying for every Ephesian believer. He says, look, you've started well. You've entered into the kingdom. You love the Lord. You're beginning to love one another. The wall of separation has begun to crumble. The line of demarcation that made the Jews feel a very real sense of them and us, that is being dealt with by the love of God. And now you are beginning to love one another, feel comfortable with one another. But I want you to have far greater depth in your revelation that you might know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So what he's saying here is, as Christ was raised by the power of God and was brought out of the grave, I am praying the same spirit will bring you out of spiritual death and darkness to walk in newness of life with that tremendous liberty where you walk in freedom, walk in love, walk in purity, walk in power, and walk in fellowship with nothing between the Lord himself and fellow believers. We'll talk further about this when next we meet.